What's up, everybody? It is Twig223. As this is being released, many of you are probably on your way or at Istanbul already. Uh, I hope that sounds like an amazing event. Uh, Thank you to Google, our amazing uh, co-host for that event, and and all the amazing speakers. Cress and Laura are out at Istanbul. Uh, Enjoy it. I will probably, I know all the sessions go online later, uh, so I might release some in the feed, actually. Seaford is out because, quote, it's my birthday today, and I don't want to spend it with Ethan and Phil, end quote. Thanks a lot, Seif. All right. It is me, Ethan Levy. I am here today uh, with Philip Black. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing I'm doing great. The sun is shining in Hawaii. Have you have you recovered from your surfing uh, uh injury or whatever it was last week that had you <laughs> off mic? All right. So here's the deal. Surfing, as Eric was mentioning, is a full body workout and it busted my ass. You're out there for Mm -hmm. two and a half hours in awkward positions that you haven't been in beforehand, paddling away. And, you know, if you're out there for two and a half hours, you know, you might get a little dehydrated. And that's what happened to me. Got a huge migraine. And let's be honest, listening to Eric (laughs) is migraine enough. I can only do one of those. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, sounds 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 like you're living a rough life there in Hawaii. I've been spit up on four times today, and it's only 11 a.m. So you know our lives are totally the same. Uh, <laughs> you're talking about waves, right? No, 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 baby. But yeah, waves of baby vomit. Um, all right. So Istanbul's happening. Uh, it it must be amazing. Uh, how's Hawaii? You said, are you, you, you told me before we turned it on, you're going to sleep after this? What time it's is it? It's a complicated life. Look, it's it, a living com- the jet set life, people think it's easy. It's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> you have to plan oh, accordingly. Uh-huh. So are you still awake from yesterday? Is that I what's happening? I am still awake from yesterday. Okay. It's, I this am. isn't like an 8 a.m. nap for you. No, no, this is an <laughs> energy boost. Okay, well, uh, uh, hopefully uh, you make sense today. If anything you say is uh, too dumb, I'll, I'll blame it on the all-nighter. Um, all right, some, some quick GDC news before we get into the business and news of the games industry for the week. Uh, I am uh, very excited for GDC. I'm very excited to see all your beautiful faces in person. Um, my GDC starts Sunday night before the conference. If you're on Slack or you follow me on LinkedIn, you would have seen the flyer I put together for the pre-GDC uh, Deconstructor Fund meetup at the Standard Deviation Brewery in the Mission in San Francisco. This will be my uh, GDC pregame slash 40th birthday party. Uh, please come out. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I hope to see you there. If you are there, just uh, come up to me. Uh, say mice nuts. Give me, give me a mice nuts. Uh, join the Slack if you're not part of the Slack community already. Deconstructor Fun slash Slack. That's one of the best ways to find out about uh, everybody who's at GDC, all the networking you can do, all the uh, parties you can go to, including not only the Sunday night drink up. Well, I see. You. Are you what? what are you going to be there when? I'm coming in Monday morning, so I will definitely uh, be there for the for the the night we have during the week. But unfortunately, I'm gonna have to miss the Sunday event. All right, yeah. So yeah, that perfect segue to Tuesday night. Uh, Deconstructor Fun, Mattel, and Exola are 
co-hosting uh, Exola Game Night. It's an official GDC event. Uh, you can go to... Oh, I'm going to have to put it in the show notes because I'm forgetting right now. Uh, go go to our Slack and uh, you'll get the link to Exola Game Night to register. Uh, you do need a conference pass to go. Uh, Tuesday is going to... It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be like a giant Hot Wheels display, Apples to Apples, uh, Pictionary, all sorts, Uno, all sorts of games uh, to come and network in a very chill and different way with your industry peers. Um, this is kind of a counter event. I'm sure many of us will go to many loud uh, alcohol-filled uh, parties. This is going to be a chill, laid-back, networking board game. We're geeks. Let's play board games and meet each other event. So, uh, Phil, I'm looking forward to uh, some Rock'em Sock'em Robots uh, with you on Tuesday night. I'm here for the Hot Wheels. I want to build here a for giant the Hot Wheels, Hot Wheels yeah, machine. No, I, I'm so excited about the Hot Wheels display. I'm going to be totally honest. Um, I need to pump my bag. I'm doing two sessions on Tuesday uh, as part of the Free-to-Play Summit. Uh, at 1.20 Tuesday afternoon, I'll be doing a fireside chat uh, with the game fam CEO Joe Ferencz about the economics of running a Roblox business. Game fam, of course, is one of the, if not the number one publisher of games on the Roblox platform. Uh, the other panel I'll be on uh, will be Do Video Games Need the Blockchain? Uh, hosted by uh, my wonderful friend Alex Takai, along with Mark Otero and Tim Morton. That'll be 5.30 to 6.30. So come... Uh, listen to me and others talk about blockchain. My opinions and current stance might surprise you. And uh, then come to Exola Game Night uh, where you can punch me in the face virtually uh, uh, with uh, some Rock'em Sock'em robots. And uh, let's see, I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. Adam Telfer will be there. Eric Kress will be there. So if you see any of the Deconstructor of Fun family members uh, come up to us, just say, just say mice nuts. That'll be the code word code word so we know that you're a listener give us a give us a uh, uh mice nuts all right that's my big gdc update as you can tell i'm like i live i live in south carolina where uh my only two uh kind of game industry peers are former colleagues of mine so i'm like very excited to meet people and network and see people in person and have an in-person gdc uh for the first time in many years um phil how are you doing sorry that's my big long update how are you doing no, that's, that sounds great. I have this new microphone and I'm figuring out something that we're going to do at GDC for Deconstructor Fund. We're going to shoot something. I don't know what it is yet, but we're going to shoot something. So we'll figure it out uh, coming up. But this microphone's going to get some use. I have a funny feeling. <laughs> All right. All right. So give Phil a mice nuts if you want to uh, come, come on the airwaves. Maybe we should... <laughs> Just ask people to tell us what they think of Eric Kress and just do 30 minute supercut of people talking about Kress because I just this morning uh, got a, a LinkedIn message that said you need to give more Kress more shit on the air like from an industry veteran. That's what the people demand. All right. <laughs> I'm I'm still waiting for my Eric Kress soundboard. That'll be coming in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. All right. Eric Kress, as we all know, the superstar of uh, Deconstructor of Fun. All right. Uh, boop, boop, boop. Breaking news. Literally saw it minutes before coming uh, on the air on uh, Twitter that uh, Starfield from Bethesda Game Studios is uh, moved to September 6th. It was uh, expected in June. 
It's now coming out September 6th, and this game, of course, will be a monster. Uh, this, I don't know. Cress, I, I wish he was here to give us kind of like a unit uh, expectation, but this is going to be one of those like 20 million sellers, right? Well, this is going to be Game Pass Day 1, if I remember correctly, right? Oh, right, right. This will be super interesting. The new world where it'll be on Game Pass and then Soul. That'll be, yeah. I mean, I still, like, from the people who made Skyrim and Fallout, I still expect this to sell a bajillion copies, but it'll be really interesting to see how the uh, Game Pass uh, launch of something this big and this AAA is. This might uh, get me to, um, uh, just like every month I say I should stop buying games and just get a Game Pass and a uh, PS Essentials subscription, or PS Premium subscription, but uh, I don't. I guess I just like spending money. Microsoft's been on the defensive lately. They've started to finally admit that putting something on the Game Pass might actually result in less unit sales than you might otherwise have if you didn't put something on the Game Pass. So I think this is going to be another big release, another big test for them on whether or not Game Pass is something that can deliver positive unit economics to developers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. That's uh, that was kind of breaking news. Let's let's go into our updates. Um I wanted to continue the conversation about Angry Birds because there was a story on Pocket Gamer that uh, said Angry Birds was delisted due to its effects on search, not sales, which is, you know, what we were talking about uh, when we talked about it last week or the the week before. Um, just the, the, the main comment I wanted to make here was that, like, there's no difference between saying it's the effect on sales versus the effect on search ranking, right? When you're running a um, title like Angry Birds 2, which I believe is their primary moneymaker, um, you and it's been out this many years, you know, I expect that Angry Birds 2 is all about the organic traffic. Angry Birds 2 is the one that monetizes much higher than Angry Birds Classic. It is the game you want all of your organic traffic going to. Um, and, you know, reading this article, it seems like uh, the low monetizing classic is basically stealing downloads from Angry Birds 2. Uh, and yes, Angry Birds 2 is free, but some percentage of organics turn into revenue as well as advertising revenue. And therefore, it's the effect on sales. Um, and so, yeah, I mean... It's, it's a silly almost say, but it's it's kind of just an education moment, like where we are in the life cycle of the platforms and especially in this post ATT world where UA is not as cheap and effective as it was, um, your organic search rankings is really important um, to your business, especially when you're running something with a big brand name like an Angry Birds or a Tetris or a Tomb Raider. And so it makes total business sense to uh, be taking down Angry Birds Classic so that you drive all of, you know, as many of those installs as you can to Angry Birds 2 or other games in the Angry Birds portfolio. Is there really no way they couldn't have changed the original Angry Birds to have and Angry Birds yeah. 2 well, underneath the surface? Um, I I mean, I think they could have... Uh, theoretically, you probably could just replace the ABK and just run the same game twice. Uh, Cress has talked many times about the cross-promo and that they tried to cross-promo it out and it, it basically didn't, didn't work. But um, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but that Tomb Raider 
Reloaded is such an interesting experiment that Netflix is running uh, because they released Tomb Raider Reloaded uh, normally, not not Netflix, um, uh, Crystal Dynamics, whoever whoever is the parent of that now, Embracer Group, I guess. They released that normally as a normal free-to-play game, and then there's Tomb Raider Reloaded Unlimited, um, as a Netflix subscriber game with no IAPs. And, um, if you, you know, if you're Netflix and you're going with the Tomb Raider game, you're probably banking on the IP to drive, um, organic, you know, to drive people to perk up and see it in the Netflix app and want to play it. And then also some organics. And if you search Tomb Raider on, on the app store, um, Tomb Raider Reloaded, the the free to play version comes up one as position one, and the Netflix version is position eight or nine this morning. Which, um, based on uh, a, a game I worked on previously, I would guess means they're getting almost no um, organic search traffic from the Tomb Raider search, um, which I'm sure they were hoping for. So probably all Tomb Raider reloaded installs are being driven by placement within the Netflix apps on the phone. Because like when you're position six or eight on a term like Tomb Raider, nobody's scrolling down that far unless they know specifically what they're looking for already. And I would imagine that this is going to be the case for almost all Netflix games in terms of just struggling to get organic downloads because their funnel will always be limited to subscribers rather than the entire base of free-to-play. Well, that that won't limit their downloads. Um, like Into the Breach, Into the Breach doesn't have two versions. There's only one version. So if you search for Into the Breach, it's going to be the number one result, right? Um, but if you download Into the Breach and launch it as a non-Netflix subscriber, I actually don't know offhand what the experience is. So it's not that they won't get the downloads, but those downloads will probably look like open up the app and bounce, right? Like, are they doing a job? Um, do they have kind of like a standard piece of tech to turn those non-subscriber downloads into anything meaningful for their business? This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fun really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. 
It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. All right. Uh, next story I wanted to bring up was EA loses the fight to keep Apex Legends and Ma Battlefield Mobile live. This is from the Sensor Tower blog. Um, here I'm going to quote the Sensor Tower blog. Since launch, the mobile game has accumulated 37 million worldwide installs. We're talking about Apex Legends and 37 million in net bookings, according to Sensor Tower data. And and I'll you know, say here, sensor tower data, like data, AI data uh, is estimates, but it's a pretty good estimate, right? So though Apex Legends results were undoubtedly affected by a broader decline in shooter popularity with the overall category bookings down 25% year over year in Q4 2022, Apex Mobile bookings significantly labbed titles like Call of Duty Mobile. Apex bookings were down 96% nearly eight months post-launch compared to a 7% increase for Call of Duty Mobile. So previously uh, with Apex, um, the developers, uh, I, I, if I recall, talked about the difficulty of high-quality live updates and that their updates were taking just a long time. And this is one of the big challenges of uh, live ops monetization where complex heroes and complex in terms of effort to create balance and launch, um, when those heroes are the main source of new content and excitement in your free-to-play app, um, it's really hard to keep the the pace up. And, and Call of Duty Mobile just has a massive amount of people, both in the US and then at the, that Tencent studio, um, just churning out all that weekly content. It's a really hard um, content treadmill to run. And from what I remember reading online, Apex Heroes especially sounded to be very high effort to implement and balance. Um, so, you know, whether we're talking about a game like Angry Birds 2, Candy Crush, Legendary, Apex Legends, or Genshin, engaging and monetizing a free-to-play uh, live ops title, especially on mobile, it's a content treadmill. You know, it requires constant content to engage players and constant new things to sell them, get them excited about, and buoy revenue. Um, the high cost of feeding this content machine means either a big team or long waits between updates. If I recall with Apex, the problem was long waits. So this may be the reason that why, even with an explosive launch with Game of the Year accolades, uh, Apex, Apex Mobile sputtered and died out and got pulled by EA. And just like, you know, uh, live ops is hard, y'all. It's really hard. Uh, it is a marathon and it takes a lot of very talented, specialized people uh, to run that content treadmill. And in the world of free to play, especially mobile, 
Um, you know, where I like to say game design is business design, you know, architecting your business, you need to think about not only what you're selling and not only why it is desirable, but what is the effort involved in keeping that machine fed and how are you going to keep that machine fed to keep those players engaged on a daily and weekly basis. And sometimes if you're very clever and you think about it at the start of your project, um, you can design the game in a way that reduces the live ops costs, the content costs. But unfortunately, part of what made Apex a game of the year quality game is also what made it so difficult to operate. So if we were to assume that the mobile version and the HD version have similar content cadences, and I think that's one of the benefits of having two SKUs based on the same IP. And, you know, despite the fact they're two SKUs, they piggyback on a lot of the HD design. So you get to free ride quite a bit. Why would we expect the mobile and HD version to have vastly different retention rates if we hold the content volume constant? Mm. Yeah, I actually have a very good answer for that. I I recorded an interview, a lost interview with Andre Van Roon, the head of the League Studio at Riot. Uh, technical issues. Half the interview got dropped, so we're going to have to re-record it sometime. Um, but the League Studio has League of Legends, Wild Rift, and Teamfight Tactics. And one of the things we talked about was their learnings moving from that HD space to the mobile space, and that players have a very different relationship to the device. The device serves a different purpose in your life. You have different expectations. You have different play times and play patterns. So I think for an HD release of Apex Mobile, um, there are people who probably heard about it on launch day, and that game has been their hobby game for like four-hour gaming sessions nightly every night since it's launched. Right. And that's kind of like when I sit down to do console gaming, I strap in with headphones on in a dark room for a 90 minute, you know, Mass Effect legend, uh, legendary edition session. Right. That's my HD gaming relationship. When I open up the phone, right, the phone is a habit machine with very different usage patterns and also a lot of other things on it fighting for your attention. And so I think people just look to the phone for a different type of entertainment than they look to the uh, HD devices for. And that was something that we talked about on this lost podcast was like how uh, even, you know, League of Legends players play differently when they're playing Wild Rift on the phone than when they're playing the HD version on their computer. Um, and it's just, you know, you have a different emotional relationship, a different, like, the device fills different needs in your life. So that makes sense to me on the margin. But I guess what I saw when Call of Duty Mobile came out, which was a big moment for shooters in the West on mobile, was a move back to longer sessions, which is something that had been missing in mobile for a long time, was this idea that you could sit down, you could have a 20, a 30 minute session. That was new and unique, I think, really to the shooter genre. Is that is that a wrong way to think no, about what no. Call of Duty Mobile has proven or shown? So, the, yeah, so this is the the point I was trying to make with the content machine, right? Call of Duty plays into the habits of a mobile experience because it is constantly releasing content, right? They have tons of people working on it, and they use those live op tactics of constant events, constant new skins, new passes, like constant excitement in the app to make the app your daily habit, 
right? So Call of Duty Mobile was running a mobile live ops business with a mobile live ops cadence where Apex Legends, and again, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, reach out on, on Slack or on LinkedIn, but Apex Legends on mobile was running more of an HD content cadence. And so my guess, um, and this is kind of borne out in, in the data, actually, that uh, Sensor Tower is releasing here, is that like people didn't stick with it. There were other stickier things fighting to be the habit on their uh, pocket uh, carry with you everywhere habit machine. That, that, I think that makes sense to me. I guess what I would still argue is that when I look at Call of Duty Mobile and I look at Apex Legends and even Roblox and Genshin, these kind of you know HD mobile franchises, sometimes dual skew, sometimes not, I agree with you that the content cadence is different. And I would also agree with you that the frequency of rewards are different. When I think about the core type of session you can have, in both Apex Legends and Call of Duty Mobile, you still need to be in a stationary place for a long period of time. It's not as though you can have all these vastly different session experiences. When you're going in to have a session in these games, by and large, you're going in to play a PvP match. And so it's much harder to fit that sort of experience in the traditional ways that a Candy Crush level or logging in to collect resources in Clash of Clans, or like going on a PVE adventure and a you know a squad RPG like Galaxy of Heroes would have. Yeah, I the the way I I think about it, like I do feel like Call of Duty Mobile. I, I haven't played it too extensively, but the matches are a little bit shorter, and the load yep, time true. is a little bit faster, right? Right. Yep. Like you can jump in and have a. You can have a waiting at the mechanic call of duty mobile session you can't necessarily have a checking out at the grocery store session the way you could at um on an afk arena type game um but again you know it's more the habit machine right like um when somebody picks up their phone and you want their attention you're fighting against tiktok right tiktok is like the most sugary glucosey sticky habit you know, serotonin device that, 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 uh, humanity has produced. Right. And so you have to convince somebody to open up your app and not TikTok, Right. Cause people are like engaging in the, in the pure, uh, serotonin rush of TikTok, maybe for hours. Right. Uh, but they're doing it like 45 seconds at a time. Right. So that's that's I think it's you know, there's a different it's it's not only the session length like this is what I'm trying to get at with the with the content cadence and the events and like the it's just like are you just need to be a constant source of excitement to be somebody's mobile phone habit is is kind of the the point I'm making. And that's a very different need in someone's life than being their HD gaming habit. Um, all right, next next news story. Um, uh, this one will be a quick one. I know Laura is a, a Telltale fan, uh, so I'll I, I'll do this one for her. Um, Wolf Among Us Two pushed to next year in effort to avoid crunch. Uh, this was on IGN, and uh, I'll read the quote from the CEO of the newly reborn Telltale Games, uh, Jamie Otley. Making games is difficult and they need time to be right. And it doesn't do us any good to ship something that's not ready. And I just wanted to call this out as kind of an industry peer and say, this is the type of delay I applaud. 
Uh, the Human Crunch is very high. Uh, if you want to hear my personal narrative about it, just go to my blog, uh, famousaspect.com, where I wrote a piece called Was All the Crunch Worth It? Um, because I have paid quite a high price uh, physically uh, and recovery time for crunch uh, from my ute. Um, and so just like I always applaud business owners delaying the game, uh, their games to reduce crunch. Um, and especially I know that the previous incarnation of Telltale um, crunch is one of the things that was cited or unrealistic expectations around cadence uh, was one thing that was cited as like why their games were sometimes so buggy or, you know, what kind of the downfall of the company was. So this to me just feels like the same narrative that led Telltale to fail the first time, which is that they couldn't ship this episodic content or content quick enough. This to me seems like this more of the same. Like, why are we expecting different outcomes from Telltale if they're already falling into the same traps they had in the in round one? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about who is at the new Telltale and what they're doing. I mean, in my opinion, they bought a brand name, Telltale, and they bought. Um, some intellectual property and the the previous telltale was doing a lot of stuff like they had wolf among us they had walking dead they had minecraft legends they had um uh, you know i remember penny arcade games and just like all sorts of different ip uh many that don't um i'm sorry that i'm blanking i wasn't uh, prepared for this one as much but like i don't think the new Telltale is doing as much. I think they're doing Wolf Among Us 2. I know about the Expanse. I don't know what else they're doing. I mean, I don't know. And and we also don't know what their economics are like, right? Like, I we don't even know actually if they're doing episodic content or not. I would almost expect that they probably are just doing premium releases and not releasing as episodes, but who knows? Oh, you know, I just want to say like, I, you know, good on, good on y'all for uh, delaying your game so that you're not crunching the human beings who work uh, at your company. We have another article from Supercell. This is from Pocket Gamer Biz announcing that Supercell will finally be bringing Clash Royale to their web store. And so what that means is you'll be able to go into a Supercell-owned URL and you'll be able to make traditional IEP purchases. So Supercell has had this web store functionality in their other titles. I think this is the last title in their portfolio that will be bringing web store functionality This is a pretty big shift for developers. We've seen Scopely start to build out some of these operations where you have a web store that you can go in and buy virtual goods from rather than having to go through the traditional platform IEPs through Apple or through Google. They've, of course, have also had desktop versions of games like Star Trek Fleet Command, whereas this is strictly for the web store. Marvel Strike Force, another game in their portfolio, has also done this. We've seen some publishers outside of Scopely also take a stab at this. I believe one of the Game of Thrones 4X games also has this. This is a pretty big change to bypass this 30% Apple tax. It seems as though it passes a cost-benefit analysis, and it seems, again, like another publisher responsibility that lets them own more of the customer relationship. And with building a web store, I can imagine it's it's pretty cheap to set up a web URL. The 
handholding that you have to do, unfortunately, is that it's very hard to get users to this web store versus making an IEP. There's still anti-steering rules that exist on the app store that really prevent you from being able to link out to this app store effectively. It's something that you really need to discover on your own, which is why building that customer relationship, having something like a supercell ID or that platform ID is so important to be able to drive the traffic that you want to these web stores and avoid having to pay the 30% fee. The question I come out asking when it comes to a lot of these web stores is how hard you can push this. So what do we think is like the maximum amount of revenue that we can have take place on the web store versus an IEP? That is ultimately going to be the value. And I think the pushback that we can, the resistance we can mount against Apple is how compelling we can make these web stores and how much traffic we can drive to them. I'm a little skeptical that what players are really looking for here are price discounts. So even if publishers choose to save some of that 30% and split it with players, so you might see a 15% discount on these web stores, I'm pretty skeptical that's going to get to conversion rates that make publishers happy with this experiment. I really think this comes down to UX and trying to tighten the UX funnel to get to these web stores. Well, I I mean, there... There are other benefits too, right? Like on um, one of the big benefits, you know, if you run a mid-core title or a title where the spending is concentrated in a small number of high spending players, like it's annoying to make $100 purchases over and over and over again. And so something you can offer players on a web store is the ability, I I don't know what the cap is, but you could offer them something like a thousand dollar purchase. And generally when you do that, you would also give them a discount, you know, give them more currency for their thousand dollars relative to what they would get for ten hundred dollar purchases. So um I think Apple you can has do changed this though. They, they've they've ex- they've uh, increased the ceiling on IEPs, so they've allowed this to happen now. I believe this was announced. I believe in the right. last four yeah, months. Yeah, we, ta- we talked about it recently. Um, so that's that's one thing. Yeah, I don't know as much about web stores as I want to, and uh, uh, I am trying to get uh, someone at our beloved sponsor Exola, who runs a, a web store service. Uh, to uh, come uh, with uh, a kind of a case study developer and uh, uh, educate us because I think it's something we're all pretty interested in. I would really love a firsthand account of uh, how the web store is improving your business. Uh, I'd especially love it from Shill Shill Shill, our beloved sponsor, Exola. But uh, since they they seem to be uh, pretty busy with Dice and GDC lately, so if anybody is out there talking, uh, running a web store and wants to talk about how positively impactful it's been on their business and what they've learned, uh, just reach out on LinkedIn or on the Deconstructor Fund Slack. Phil, how how am I doing it at just uh, shilling? Am I? This know? this is great. It, it feels like no no one has left. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what we're talking loot boxes next, right? More, more loot box uh, legislation. The the saga continues. So this is a case. Did you read this case... one in German? Did you... So I, I mean, here's the thing: when it comes to a lot of these loot box articles, and especially how they get covered in the press, uh, poorly. <laughs> it ends up being covered rather poorly because the details matter, and the details matter quite a bit. And so a lot of the times when we have a new entry into this ongoing saga. It lacks a lot of the context you need to effectively evaluate what this case means in the broader context of the loot box debate. And I think this is a really great example of sometimes 
the struggle to contextualize what these cases mean. This is a case out of Austria, not Australia, Austria, about a 17-year-old FIFA player who had made a class action lawsuit against, and it ended up being Sony in this particular situation. The court had ruled that the contract when they made a purchase was with Sony because they were making the purchase on the PlayStation rather than with Electronic Arts and FIFA. So he made a class action lawsuit against PlayStation demanding a refund for the $300 he spent. So again, it doesn't take a lot of money to bring about these huge class action lawsuits to have standing in these legal cases. But ultimately, he was arguing that the contract was null and void because the purchase of the Lufa, the FIFA loot boxes or the FIFA coins were uh, invalid under Australia's, or excuse me, Austria's gaming law. And the, the, the legal question in almost all of these cases that's been brought forward is this kind of in versus out of circuit distinction. So if you go back to the Netherlands case that EA, by the way, ultimately prevailed in, what the argument was is that when you make a purchase in a lot of these games, the reason it's not gambling is because you can't export that money. You can't take that money and turn it back into USD. It's, quote, in circuit. It's trapped within the circuit of the game. Now, of course, there's like off-party or off-platform ways that you can try to cash out for real-world money, but that is a violation of the terms of service, so it doesn't hold a lot of legal water. So it's unclear in this case why the in-versus-out-of-circuit distinction did not end up playing a strong role. It's unclear even if Sony put up a strong defense here. Why would they want to defend EA? Who, who knows what that legal team looks like? But at the end of the day, the thing that I also want to point out in a lot of these loot box cases is that whatever you think about where HD games are in terms of loot boxes, where mobile games are in terms of loot boxes, if you are Web3, they have really dodged a bullet on this because if you take that in versus out of circuit distinction, every Web3 game clearly fails it. You know, we could make a legal argument for HD or mobile, but if you're Web3, if you're NBA Top Shot, you're opening card packs that have real world money value attached to them that have clear ways for you to export or go out of circuit with that money. That is an absolute violation of nearly all of these laws. And we've seen very little conversation about that because HD gamers don't care about Web3. And all of this conversation has been driven by angry HD gamers rattling on Reddit, rattling on Twitter, causing a bunch of noise. And this to me, again, is a, is a very clear experiment that if it isn't about a game that an HD gamer cares about, then it doesn't make press. I know very much about uh, designing, marketing, stuffing, and uh, selling loot boxes inside of uh, games for virtual currency. I know nothing about the legal side of it. So uh, you know what? I'll actually put out another call out, which is if anybody is a true legal expert who understands uh, all these various things, this would make a very interesting interview. I would love to interview um, someone who uh, uh, went to law school, understands these different cases, and, and can actually educate us about the, the status of all these different um, loot box laws, because I think it's of interest to many, uh, many in the audience. Let's pause this podcast for a moment, because I need to talk to you. That's right, you. Are you ready? Good. So, you're an indie game developer and you need funding to help you launch and market your game. No problem, right? There should be one place where you can get funding and resources, but there really hasn't been one until now. Our friends at Exola have launched Exola Funding Club, which you should check out ASAP. 
Exola Funding Club is matchmaking service for developers, investment firms, and groups, as well as video game publishers. They have a simple process. Developers apply to join the funding club. Once they're accepted, their applications are sent directly to interested investors looking to invest into video games, games just like yours. It's a win-win situation. Qualified developers get their game pitches placed in front of funding sources, while investors discover curated games that meet their criteria for the investment portfolio. Ready to get started? Just head over to exola.pro funding, or find the link in the episode description and apply today. Exola Funding Club, putting the fun back in funding. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them. They know their data. Head to appsflyer.com benchmarks now for more info. Speaking of loot boxes, I wanted to talk about uh knockout city and the challenges of uh cosmetics forward monetization there was a really uh wonderful uh and by wonderful i mean like open informative like thank you for sharing interview with the ceo of valen games on gamesindustry.biz called where did knockout city go wrong um as you probably know, Knockout City uh, was first a premium multiplayer-only title launched at EA. Um, really well received. People loved it. Uh, eighty to eighty-three Metacritic. You know, ranging between eighty to eighty-three Metacritic, depending on which skew you look at. That, in my book, is a very good game. Um, better than probably most of the games I've ever worked on. So I haven't played this game, but by all accounts, this is a very good game. Um, it launched premium after a year, it went free to play and also spun out of EA. Um, so this was an EA internal development, um, and it, they became their own game studio. Um, and now a year later, they're shutting down. They're shutting down on June 6th. Um, let me, uh, read about, and this, this is going to be super interesting because I think Phil, you do kind of the type of consulting you currently do is kind of adjacent to the type of consulting I used to do. And I believe you said you actually worked on knockout city. some. so this is going to be like super, super interesting, uh, monetization, uh, uh, thoughts because we're very, uh, adjacent but different monetization people since mine is a game design i'm i'm a fake economist and i'm guessing you're a fake game designer basically <laughs> you're a real economist fake game designer i'm a real game designer fake economist um here here is a quote 
Knockout City got off to a strong start when it was published as a mid-priced premium title by Electronic Arts with an additional boost thanks to its inclusion on the Xbox Game Pass. It sold fairly well, but not well enough as a mid-priced premium title to continue to support an additional flow of content. So then comes the part, you know, I'm over a decade from when I was consulting, but over a decade ago, I warned countless clients uh, about this next part, the dangers of this next part, right? We'd made an early commitment also to make it cosmetics only microtransactions, not going the loot box route or other kind of routes, and certainly no pay to win because it's not the healthy essence of a competitive game, Bela says. Um, and then the interview goes on. He blames inflation. He blames currency devaluation for why their live ops free-to-play game isn't working. And yes, these are real forces. Yes, these affect everyone. Um, the meta of the global economy is a real issue for everyone in the game industry and especially in free-to-play. Um, the macro rules our lives, and it has resulted in reduced profits for companies, game closures, game cancellations, layoffs, reduced pace of VC funding. Probably everybody who listens to this podcast has been affected by the changing macro um, over the past year or two, um, as it looks like we're kind of like flirting with the recession in the US and in different countries. But I believe, and, and the real economists can can correct me, but I, I believe we haven't hit the technical definition of a recession yet, but everybody listening, everybody in the games industry, and especially people in free to play have been affected. And then, but this is the, the, the critical quote of the interview to me, a cosmetics based free to play game, while it's really appealing to us as gamers requires massive scale to be economically sustainable. And that's the thing, uh, many people paid me to tell them and then to ignore, right? Like I had a bunch of people who basically look at league of legends you know, we're all ga- almost everybody who works in gaming is a gamer. Like that's why they got into it. And they look at League of Legends and they're like, League of Legends is doing it right. And Ethan's dumb loot box games are horrible and I hate them. And let's do what League of Legends does. Uh, let's do what Fortnite does. And look, like you can find success with a cosmetics driven economy. Um, But when you run a cosmetics-driven game, like a cosmetics-forward game, you are selling to a very small part of the audience. Um, And so what that means is you need massive scale, right? I I told a bunch of people, you can copy League of Legends monetization model if you have League of Legends audience scale. And kind of similar now, you can copy Fortnite's monetization model if you have Fortnite's audience scale. Um, So tell me, game developer how are you going to get there what is your marketing strategy how are you going to attract literally tens of millions of people to play and stick with your game what is the cost of attracting those players and and a lot of people at the end of the day um don't have the experience of working with an expert like eric seaford and learning from him um or learn you know some of the wonderful ua people like dan barnes i got to work with like that like uh if you're doing it by paying it's very expensive to make people aware of your free-to-play game and to get them in your game. Um, a lot of people just hope that they could copy League of Legends and launch it and people will come because it's a great game and people will stream it on Twitch and they'll find out about it and the audience will grow organically. And and yes, that happens, but it happens very rarely. Um, it is very rare to have a true organic tens of millions of players around the world hit. So like I, I applaud Valen on making by all accounts an excellent game and as well on their CEO's openness and transparency. And it's a really excellent interview. You should read it 
and and I'm not trying to dunk on Valen. As I said, great game, better than most of the games I've ever worked on. I just want to emphasize that um, in free-to-play, you don't need to just design your game. You need to design your business, and you need to put careful consideration on both sides of your business model. What will attract people to your game, and why will they spend money? And unfortunately, if you hate loot boxes, if you hate gotcha, if you hate pay for advantage, or you hate pay to win, you hate what is proven to work from a business sense, and you are more likely to fail than to succeed um, by making those choices. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my like cosmetics forward rant. I have more. We've we've gone pretty long already. Um, so what's your? You know, you've you've. Uh, worked on this game um, so probably there are some things you can say and some things you can't um, you are a true economist uh, what's what's kind of your your take here Phil so first of all I'd reiterate my love for Valen Games and the studio I think they're an incredible group of people and you know we've we're, we're gonna have uh, you know Hot Wheels uh, pretty soon uh, you know at our GDC events they are they've announced a game that they'll be doing with Hot Wheels where they're gonna be using the Mario Kart technology if you remember that they made a physical mm-hmm. Mario Kart game that had little cameras in these carts you could race them around it was true AR so you'd have these Mario Karts running around your house and it would overlay cool digital assets onto your Nintendo Switch screen really cool stuff they're extending that technology to Hot Wheels. I'm really excited with what they're going to come out with. But when it comes to Knockout City, I would provide some alternative explanations. So I I actually don't think this is a monetization story. I would say to your point, though, traditionally when I work with HD developers, this is the struggle when it comes to monetization, which is that they don't want to struggle with monetization, which is why they call people. They have this. They don't they don't actually want to think about how their games monetize. No, and I think that's what leads them to cosmetics, right? Because you really can slap cosmetics on any different game because it doesn't affect the core loop, right? So you can be at any stage of development and you can decide that you want to shit out a cosmetic-based monetization. And the next thing they'll do is they, and this is nearly <laughs> every project that I've worked on slap with a skin developers. On it. Slap, slap a skin on it. But the other thing that they want to do is they want to copy kind of this Fortnite rotating store plus battle pass. And when you kind of walk them through the idea that these battle passes, again, are engagement drivers, not monetization drivers. And not only that, but the rotating store ends up doing most of the revenue. You know, we had this information released to us during the Epic v. Apple trial that the item store does 67% of the revenue. It has a much greater ability to activate spend depth because you're looking at, what, $20 a bundle and you have maybe 30 items in the store. They've massively expanded that, by the way, Epic Games, because they know that's what their cash cow is. So they've gone from having, you know, six or seven items to 30 items, and they've dramatically increased the price point of a lot of the items in the store. But putting putting kind of the monetization question aside, you know, if you look at SteamDB, Not Good City has not retained in the way it needs to be. So when the game launched, it had kind of this block party shareware approach where you would have the ability to download the game and play for free for two weeks. So some way to kind of activate the funnel, given the fact that it's not free to play. But despite this, despite having a lot of, I think, decent user acquisition acquisition tools and getting some volume, the game has just not had the ability to retain. So so I would actually put on my game designer hat, my my fraudulent game designer hat, when I think about (laughs) what's going on with this particular game. (laughs) And I would go back to the core of this game. So it is a dodgeball game. 
you are throwing dodgeballs at your opponents. And when we think about what the live ops funnel for this, and we talked about this a little bit on the cast previously, but what is the units of retention that you get every time you introduce a new dodgeball into this game? So cosmetics, again, one of the problems with cosmetics is that they're very expensive and that they don't add a lot of units of retention. It's very hard to engage with, let's say, a t-shirt that I could earn versus a new gun. I can't really master a t-shirt the way I can a gun. I, I think I, I can intuit, but what do you mean by unit or let me let me guess what you mean by units of retention, because I think it ties back actually to Apex, right? I said that heroes were the main driver of engagement and monetization in that game. Meaning um when you release a new hero into Apex Legends, it um drives a lot of play activity a lot of units of engagement because there's a new hero um it can give you a new person to master a new person to play against a new thing to make youtube videos about or watch videos about or think about how it plays into your team like there's a lot it changes the game in a meaningful way is is that what you mean by units of retention right Absolutely. And this is a game that had a very traditional, what you might call additional arcade style match setup. So when you think about like what an arcade match style setup is, and this is the same thing that Halo had, right? This is what Halo had in the most recent Halo, which is also suffering, suffering quite a bit, is that you would have these items spawn in the middle of the map and players are really battling for control over these items. So there isn't gameplay that you're earning at all, regardless of whether or not it's connected to monetization. Just being able to earn gameplay is a really important and compelling part of monetization. And not only that, they don't have characters. So you think about Overwatch. Overwatch doesn't have any gameplay that you are earning over time. The only thing that Overwatch really bets on is this idea that you have these characters and that you're going to spend time mastering each of these characters. So each of the characters represents, you could almost think of it as uh, you know a sum of retention units. And of course, if you want to figure out what the retention of the game is, you sum all of the different characters and the amount of hours they take to master. So I would say, uh, I just don't think they have a lot too here. Too academic. <laughs> To, you cannot be telling people they need to sum the units of... Re- Speak like a human, Phil, not like an economist. You, I, I think you need falsifiable theories about how these things fit together. Oh, no! What? <laughs> Come on! Now, you, you, you have to be doing science, I think, if we want to learn things. And if we don't have falsifiable theories, then we're not learning things, and we're going we're gonna to see the same crap in, same crap out. Right. So what what you're saying is um, because, again, as I said, I didn't actually play this game. So part of why they didn't retain and retention being part of the function of monetization, it's all just ties to what makes money or not. Um, But every time they release a new dodgeball skin or a new character skin, it doesn't give you anything new to do. And so like their content treadmill is not going to make it likely that players stick with the game. Right. Right. You have Whereas, to you have to make sure your live ops is constantly beating the player's opportunity cost because they're constantly to your point at the top of the hour they're getting assaulted with new content all these games. Their their alternative options are always increasing in terms of value and if you don't beat that rate of increase they're going to churn. Right. And so like part of um uh, uh, past GDC talks I, I've given about legendary is about like uh, the work we do to make it easy to make new game content, right? So there's still a team on legendary still pumping out multiple events per week, multiple characters per week. And like, 
we're not just selling a new card every week or that they, I'm no longer part of them, but they and all the similar um, event-driven free-to-play games. You're every week or sometimes multiple times a week giving a bunch of new levels or a bunch of new dungeons or a reason um, to replay old content. Right. And along the way, there's also something you can pay for, probably for an advantage in that new content. But your events are actually servicing um, the 80 to 95 percent of the active user base who've made it far enough into the game to unlock events, which like, you know, really should happen in the first 30 minutes in a mobile free-to-play game like when you release new events you're releasing new things to be excited about new what did you call it units of retention (laughs) units of of retention (laughs) units of retention you're releasing new units of retention um uh, new stuff for people to get excited about and also a reason for them to spend money about so if you've got cosmetics only you're just giving them something to spend money about but not new reasons to play that's exactly it awesome well this uh yeah cool i'm uh i i uh this is fun this is like when i all these economics uh and behavioral sciences books i listen to this is like me being able to pause the audiobook and ask what the <laughs> fuck you're talking about <laughs> there's some greek lettering behind all of this i promise you uh, no. it, looks, it looks very official yeah this is this is what I, you know, something that like popped the academic bubble for me is like, you can just make up an equation. Like if you're a game designer, you're making up equations all the time and they just have fancy ways of like making their equations hard to read. But like yesterday I wrote a new equation to figure out a distribution of main and side quests within a replayable RPG framework, right? I just said something very academically, which was like, you know, I, I figured out how to procedurally generate quest lines. <laughs> and like, it's not, uh, sorry, Eco- weird economics rant nobody cares about over. Tell me about Niantic's new game, but do it uh, quickly. We're a little over time, uh, which is my fault. So Niantic has announced a new game. I believe it's pronounced Paradot. And so they've, they've been coming off a lot of failures. So they've had a Pikmin uh, location-based game that did not do so well. They had a Harry Potter location-based game that didn't do well. We've seen the genre just really suck. I mean, I, to be honest with you, we can't call this a genre anymore, right? Going back to this whole idea of, of, of game thesis and you know having these different releases and trying to figure out what is driving the success of something and what isn't driving the success of something, it appears that location-based gaming is not a thing. It, it's a, it, there was a Pokemon phenomenon, and that was it. Uh, no, so there, there's, hard, a Jurassic, there's a Jurassic Park game that did well too, and the Walking is it around, Dead game. Is, can we can we talk to anyone on the game today? I don't remember the answer to that. I think that game's still alive. Um, but no, uh, I mean, I did. I, yeah, I, I did. We, we, we did talk about this uh, last week while you were too dehydrated in, in the whole like uh, Hogwarts legacy. <laughs> headache, and, headache. Yeah, we did. We did talk about um, uh, um, uh, the game fantasy um, and why like Hogwarts legacy worked and, and um, the Hogwarts AR game didn't. Anyways, go on. No, I would just say like, you know, the the struggle I have and and this game appears to be more along the lines of Pokemon or actually I think that the the comparison that was used is Tamagotchi. So you're going to have this pet, you're going to raise it, you're going to feed it, you're going to engage in a lot of activities with this pet. I really struggle to see why I need location based gaming to have this core loop 
be compelling. I don't understand what location-based gaming is bringing to this that you couldn't have otherwise. And when we saw Pokemon Go, it at least was tied into this idea of collecting, right? That was the whole idea of Pokemon. When Ash Ketchum went on his quest away from Pallet Town, he was going to catch them all. And so you have a very natural fit into a location-based game. I really struggled to see what location-based gaming adds to the core loop beyond that. And to me, the, the, the struggle I really have in the Antic right now is you've been failing over and over again. You've seen other observations in the marketplace where things in terms of location-based gaming have not panned out. Like, what is your new thesis here? I don't, I don't see what the thesis is here. They seem to be, I don't know, I guess, failing downward. <laughs> you know, they, they have a cash cow, but this, this just seems like a waste of time. What is the new idea that they're testing here? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll see once... The game comes out. I haven't read too much about it. Um, yeah, it's really. I mean, uh, and you forgot they, they also did Settlers of Catan thing. Did they launch their NBA thing or not? I can't remember. Um, no, that died. Right. Yeah. So I I think it's so. I mean, it's a bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a bloodbath, but you have like a still a billion dollar a year mega hit. So I would put you know again to use the I I try I like not to, um, shit on successful people, right? <laughs> like I feel like it's very easy for us to like call Supercell a failure or call Niantic a failure, and it's like look when they're generating like a billion over a billion dollars a year, it's not a failure. So these are failed experiments. That, failed experiments. Right. That's fair, but right. but the question if you're an executive yeah. is always what's the opportunity cost? Why can't I just pump this money into Pokemon Go? Like I'm right. gonna have better ROI than these experiments. Yeah. So my 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 guess is that they have and continue to put as much resources as they can into Pokemon Go. Like they've ooh, reached the point where marginal cost has exceeded marginal utility or the other way around. That's it. I love it. I, I love it. We're getting there. We're getting there. Another hour and things are going to get weird. <laughs> People are really going to unsubscribe from our podcast feed. Um, they, I, I assume they put as much resources as they possibly can into Pokemon Go. And it's a company that is founded on this location based in AR tech. And so they're looking for other avenues for it. They're running experiments to find other avenues for it with like, you know, they've done a bunch of licenses. This is their first new IP since Ingress. So maybe they're thinking, oh, if we run like you can't deny that the location based gaming of Pokemon Go is super fun. Right. The problem is you have to make that game playing that game very intentional. Like it becomes part of your life and you like change the way you live for it. And so the question is, you know, they've been, they've tried all these licenses, some massive like Harry Potter, some niche like Settlers or Pikmin. Um, I've also put NBA in, in the massive category and they haven't well, they found have Marvel it. one on the pipeline too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it like, yeah, like, I don't, uh, uh, location-based gaming is not part of my core fantasy of uh, reading X-Men or watching 47 Avengers movies, which I most certainly, I watch every movie, I watch every TV show. I have no desire to walk around the block trying to capture Ironheart and Captain Marvel um, and who, you know, whoever. But I will watch more seasons, as many seasons of She-Hulk as they make. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it, I I don't sorry I don't know about enough about this game. I think my takeaway from from your from what you said is um, they need to be running a different thesis behind their products to find their next avenue of growth. And I I agree. Well, did I is that yeah, kind of cer- certainly because the idea of hey this this other game didn't work because we picked the wrong IP you know the wrong IP product fit um, that's failed over and over again. And so this this just seems like more of the same. You know, it's not a licensed IP, but I still don't understand what this is bringing new. It seems like they've almost sat down and they've refused to accept that Pokemon was integral to the to the success of Pokemon Go, and it had right. very little to do with location based gaming. <laughs> and that is going to be a serious challenge for this company going forward. I bet they I bet they know that. I <laughs> I bet they know that. But then, then show me something new. Show right. me something new and and, and how you use the, the how you tie together a, you know this genre and a gameplay mechanic. Because yeah. we've seen it in Web three, right? We've seen Steppen. Um, that's been an interesting experiment. Um, we've seen what kind of shoe based collection location games that feels like a natural fit. Where are those coming out of? Well, uh, uh, Steppen was a Ponzi scheme. Steppen was a Ponzi scheme sure. that already collapsed. Sure, but the idea of shoes, um, the idea of shoes and being able and there was there was another mobile game that also used shoes and shoe collection and location yeah. as a core component of, of what you did. You know, where, where's that stuff? That stuff seems to make more sense. Uh, there's a lot of collection there. There's a huge sneakerhead culture. It feels like this This is a, something that I want to see served. Well, I guess, uh, you know, there's a reason why there's only one Taylor Swift. There's only one Pokemon Go. It's nearly impossible to make a global phenomenon. But uh, we'll, we'll see what Peridot, uh, Peridot can do it. All right. Well, this was fun. I hope that people enjoyed it as much as clearly Phil and I did. <laughs> uh, happy birthday, Seifert. Uh I miss uh, everybody who's I, I can't wait to hear about Istanbul. Uh, sounds like it was an amazing event. I have too many children to go to two game conferences in a single month. So uh, I hope uh, those to pictures see- of what you ate on the what? Slack. I want to I want to see some beautiful Turkish food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Show show me some kebabs, uh, show me uh, pictures of Mishka in the wild, and I look forward to seeing uh, as many of you as I can, uh, including Phil, at GDC later this month. All right, bye y'all. I'm excited about that too. Have a good one. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.